Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest today is Kalil Gupta. He's an assistant professor of cell biology. He has his own lab, the Kalil Gupta Lab at Yale. And we're going to talk about uh, these deep sea snails that uh, he's studying off the coast of India and, um, you know, the whole world of biology. So, Kalil, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for the invite. I'm really excited. Yeah. So what, what got you interested in uh, snails and these particular snails? Like, why them? Yeah, so uh, it was rather an accident that I chanced uh, upon them. Uh, like many PhD students, or at least I, I should speak for just myself, I had very little idea about what PhD is before I started working. So I remember I was a physical chemist before I started doing my PhD. And then my PhD supervisor said that uh, just because you've done something for one year doesn't mean that you continue doing it for the rest of your life. And that really inspired me. So, um, and then there's a, when I started joining the lab, uh, when I joined the lab, there's an idea about you know, looking at natural peptides because these peptides all bind to, you know, they bind to different membrane proteins and receptors, which is what I'm currently working with. And the idea is these peptides are all neurotoxic. So somewhere or other, they are basically perturbing your cellular physiology. So whatever immobilizes you, uh, in, a, in a regulated dose, that's basically an anesthetics. So the idea of the motivation behind studying these peptides and many others actually, uh, which are nociceptive in nature, is to basically understand how these organisms in biology have fine-tuned their arsenal of toxin so that they can actually specifically target different ion channels and receptors uh, in, the, in our central nervous system and in that way, they hijack our, our physiology. And that sounded like a very interesting question. And uh, it's interesting right. because my first part of the PhD was basically to half of the time I would sail to the deep sea to, uh, with the fishermen to get the snails and then get them back in the lab, sacrifice them, get the toxins. And they're basically a very rich concoction, a few hundred polypeptide molecules. And my job was... Well, uh, Quick question here. Um, yes. What do you know of the natural environment of these snails? Like, who tries to prey on them and who are they defending themselves against? Yeah, it's a very important question. So, uh, actually, even in the same natural environment, different kinds of snails, based on their feeding habit, would have different set of toxins. And this is basically a beautiful example of evolution. So, for example, a PC horror snail would have a different kind of toxins or different arsenal of toxin than, let's say, a molecivorous snail or a warmivorous snail. So, that, so based on their feeding habit, it would actually create different set of toxins or a mixture of toxins, which are kind of fine-tuned to that kind of species that they're trying to target. Uh, so both the natural habitat as well as their feeding habit uh, what is actually very, very critical. One of the key experiments uh, that, or rather a 
dream experiment that uh, my uh, my co-PhD, my late co-PhD supervisor always thought of doing is take one kind of snail which has you know has particular feeding habit and keep it in in a, in a, in a, in a control environment, a laboratory environment where you keep feeding. Let's say a molecivorous snail, you start giving it fish. So does it actually change the venom that it's producing within a life cycle or maybe a couple of life cycles? We don't know these things actually that well. So um, when does the snail release its venom? Do you know it's like after a fish tries to ingest it and it poisons its way out? Or yes. does so, a fish taste it and spit it out? Like what happens? Yeah, so uh, different snails produce, the different snails use different kinds of mechanisms. So for example, there's a class of snails which basically inject just the way you would, you know, inject uh, medicine. They would inject that they have a harpoon mechanism using which they would inject these venoms in the in their prey. Some of them would actually, like a bucket, swallow everything, and once it swallows, that environment is now toxin filled. So slowly, that would sedate their prey. So different snails would use slightly different variations of the you know preying mechanism. What what do you snails eat normally? The uh, fish, uh, other snails, worms, what do we get in the deep sea? And it's fascinating because based on their feeding habit, it would uh, it would actually change. It's actually really interesting because the first example of these snails in the modern literature comes from during it comes from a World War diary of an American soldier who was actually posted in, uh, I think, the uh, coast of Japan, in the Pacific coast. Um, and then he encounters these snails, and then he writes in his diaries. And then somehow it's all forgotten. Um, and then somewhere around 1990 and mid-90s, uh, Baltimore Oliveira from University of Utah, who was at that point of time not Utah, uh, started working with these like a true pharmacologist, a molecular pharmacologist. And he started showing that, look, these things are basically producing a concoction of molecular libraries, uh, which are now kind of, you know, on an evolutionary time scale, fine-tuned to look at, target different membrane proteins and receptors and hijack our biology. So what so, do these, uh, these snail venoms target? Are they different from, you know, let's say a, a cobra that would bite you? Like, yes. What kind yes. of uh, venoms are they? Absolutely. So... Uh, Yes, they're different. Um, the snake. So I also sl- partly worked with snail venom, snake venoms during my PhD. The snake venoms, in some way, are a bit boring because they both have. Uh, they all have mostly what they call alpha toxin. They bind to a particular receptor called the nicotinic receptors. It is the receptor which is also responsible for acetylcholine, uh, cholinergic signal transaction. It's a central receptor in our uh, central nervous system and nociception or pain perception. So most of the snake toxins would bind to this receptor. This is also the receptor which gets impaired upon smoking. So it's a big pharmacological target for you know smoking cessation and everything. Huh. So what it does, basically, it blocks your pain perception. And this is how I got interested in membrane proteins because... In the first part of my uh, PhD, I was rather an ignorant PhD student whose idea was just to sequence, develop mass spectrometry methods uh, 
they just sequence these proteins to know their structures because the, these uh, venoms that are produced know their structure, what the chemical architecture of these, and knowing that using mass spec and developing newer mass spectrometric methods was my focus. But then what happened halfway into my PhD, uh, the Sri Lankan Civil War broke out. And as a result of that, uh, the Indian fishermen who used to go to the deep sea to collect the fish, they stopped going to the deep sea because that's very close to Sri Lanka and they'll get shelled by the Sri Lankan army. So as a result of that, I stopped getting samples. So I remember I woke up, I walked up to my PhD supervisor and I asked exactly the same question that you asked, that where are they mining? What are they doing? So then he said that, okay, since you're not getting any sample, why don't you make this question your PhD, the rest of your PhD thesis? And then I started looking. It's not that I discovered where they mined, but many of those, uh, the, the different kinds, some of the receptors were already known, but some of the uh, novel toxins that I discovered, we found out where they bind. And they typically bind to membrane proteins, uh, which, are, which are basically residing at the cellular wall. So, you know, if you, if you compare a cell with a room, just like a room has a wall, the cell has its own wall. And just like a room has a, has a door or a window through which you can communicate with the surroundings, the cell also has its specific doorways and windows, which are mostly made of a specific set of proteins called membrane proteins because they reside at the membrane. Now, 60% of the drugs that are currently available at the market, they all target different kinds of membrane proteins. That's, my, that, that's how much important they are to regulate our cellular physiology and different pathophysiological conditions. From cancer to different forms of cancer to neurodegeneration, you would see membrane proteins cropping up again and again and again and again, and their impairment cause different physiological deformation. So these toxins are basically binding to these subset of membrane proteins whose job is basically to propagate neuronal signaling. So basic, So, if you think about pain perception, which is called scientifically called nociception, the idea of nociception is just a neuronal signaling, uh, a particular kind of neural signaling, if you may say, which leads to, which are, which are relayed by a specific set of membrane proteins. Now, like sodium channel or potassium channel or nicotinic receptors. And these snails have evolved to generate a large array of molecules, which in like a, like a shotgun manner, it just throws everything at you. Some of them would bind, some of them would not bind. But even if, let's say, 10% of it walks in your body, the snail is successful. And it has been successful in blocking the pain perception in your physiology. And at that point of time, you're a helpless prey for the snail. Wait, why, why would it... Uh mask you from feeling pain like if you were if you were um you know envenomated by one of these mm. snails mm. would you not feel any pain but slowly you'd lose awareness and go unconscious and then die yes. what would happen yeah that's exactly what happened so most of these snails are not uh deleterious to human beings simply because of the size proportion so they can't just deliver that much of toxins that we need to sedate a human being this is the this is the gray line, right? Anything that is uh, that that is making you unconscious in a regulated dose, that's a painkiller. Uh, it's exactly the same thing; just the dosage are regulated. And that's so exactly snails, what So, if you were able to harness 
these snails uh, venom, you could, I guess, have multiple levels. You could maybe do a painkiller with it. Absolutely. You could take it further and do an anesthesia. Absolutely. And you could take it further and then kill someone, which you, know, you probably yes. want to do. But. Yes, yes. So that's precisely uh, why these snails and many other natural peptide libraries are very, very important. Because that's exactly what we want to do. And one of the key reasons, the key motivation behind this is exactly what I was you know, mentioning before that. 60% of the drugs are targeting membrane proteins. We are, because of the recent, what we call, you know, resolution revolution, where we are determining structures using imaging approaches, determining structures of proteins have become much easier. Membrane proteins specifically have become much easier than what it used to be, I think, even five years back. So now the next key question that comes, you know, that's standing in front of us is how do we specifically target one set of membrane proteins without perturbing its very closely uh, related homologs? And that's where these snails have figured it out. It's, they figured it out through a temporal window of evolution. But they can have fine-tuned their genomic library to target only one set of proteins, but not other. I can give you another example of WASP, which I also worked with during my PhD, where they basically, uh, they, would, they, would, they, would, they would immobilize their prey not to feed on them, so that they immobilize their prey so that actually they can lay egg inside their prey. And that prey is now just immobilized, but it's still alive. And now that body is basically working as an incubator for, for that wasp to hatch its egg. And once the eggs are all hatched, then there's no need of the host cell. So the, so the newborns are basically rupturing out of these host organisms, which are immobilized by the venom. So it's a beautiful chemistry or you know biology, whatever you want to call it, which they have figured out over millions of years of coevolution. And that's really fascinating. And one of the reasons why we're interested in studying both membrane proteins and natural peptide or toxin libraries, because if we want to target proteins specifically one kind, but you know, without perturbing others, one way to start from scratch, but maybe another way is to look at nature and figure out how other organisms in the nature have already done. And learn from them. So, in a way, the snails are kind of like a um, a parasitic wasp. Some of them they'll infect a creature, stun it, or incapacitate it, but it's still alive, and they'll lay lay eggs in it. And I guess when the eggs hatch, they eat their way out, or the yes. creature's dead by then, or what happens? Yes. So, the, so the snails don't do that. Uh, the, the, but there are certain kinds of wasps which would do that. Um, snails or snakes, their interests are much more immediate. They're hungry, so they want to kill their prey and eat it. Whereas the... You know, this, um, you know, it's funny, this reminds me, I had a fish tank years ago, hmm. and I remember they were fishing it, and all of a sudden snails appeared. I don't know where <laughs> they came from. And then I saw one day a, a fish was dead, and there were two snails, like, suckered onto it. And I thought, yeah. how the hell could the snails catch this fish? The snails barely move, and the fish is swimming around. So maybe the same thing happened in my little fish tank years ago that you're talking about. I would be surprised if you suddenly saw corn snail appearing in your fish tank. But I, whatever it is, uh, it is definitely in the same line where they have, you know, co-evolution has basically put a tremendous stress on these organisms to live in an extremely hostile environment. 
with their slow speed to develop a, a unique arsenal which separates them from the rest of the food chain. And it's, it's a beautiful chemistry to study. In, in thinking about the shape of a snail and how it's so slow compared to a fish, <laughs> are, these, are these proteins expressed on the shell in like a, maybe like a goo? So maybe the fish is mouthing the snail shell and that's how it gets infected? Or like I can't, I can't see how the snail would get into a position where it's, its flesh is attached to the fish or maybe unless the, I guess the fish starts to swallow it, then maybe it envenomates it. Like what, what are the different mechanisms that people have found out that snails can envenomate a fish? Yes. So for the cone snails, they have actually, many of them have developed a harpoon mechanism. So just by throwing an axe, they basically have venom glands where they synthesize the venom and it's stored in the venom gland. And whenever they want to inject that venom onto, the, onto their prey, they basically fill that harpoon with uh, the venom and throw it like an axe and it just stings the prey. And the moment it does that, it's immobilized because it works. You mean, you mean they'll, they'll see a fish and they'll go up and spit at it? Exactly. And the venom will, will hit the fish? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the, that's the majority of the, that's the mechanism for the majority of the snails. But there are also snails which will, just like a big tub, swallow everything. And then they'll keep it in that environment inside the mouth where there's higher percentage of uh, toxins, which will eventually sedate all the fish and they'll just swallow all of them. So they're different mechanisms, but the harpoon mechanism is the most common one, which you can, you can compare that with, you know, with uh, those, uh, those uh, blue arrows that you get or that you see uh, in, in some tribes, which basically have those darts which at the front end are toxins and they just blow it from a pipe and it just you know, hits somebody and immediately the prey is immobilized. It's, it's very, very similar to that. Yeah, but in the water, how could a harpoon work? Wouldn't it, I, would, I imagine it might be a cloud. Like the, uh, I, I'm probably wrong, but I would think the snail goes, and then like a cloud of venom kind of floats around it and the fish you know, swims through it. But you're well, saying these are... You think underwater there's actual harpoons? Like yeah, that would... yeah, there are videos available. If you're interested, I'll send you some. Uh, it's beautiful. Of course, there's more resistance inside water. So, but they have evolved to evolve their muscles and related organs to overcome that resistance to the level that they can survive. So, of course, there's a distance criteria present. They always wait till the fish comes within the territory within which they can harpoon. And then the well, what I'm what I'm surprised about in the water is, you know, I'm picturing a little harpoon, the water changing its path. Like, how could you get a straight path? How could you target anything, even a few inches away in the water? I guess maybe there, it's like what, like what does the harpoon itself look like? Is it a, um, is it just composed of a liquid of a higher density, or is it a physical? No, no, no. It's it's a, it's a tissue. It's a, it's a tissue. It's a tissue based organ, and inside that you have the venom, which is basically like a needle, which is now injected onto the fish. But yes, you're oh, right. So it's like a pseudopod or something. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yes, you're right. So uh, turbulence in the deep, that's why these creatures sometimes would not be in the shallow sea. They would be in the deep sea, where there's probably less perturbance, uh, especially due to human activities. 
uh, compared to the shallow end of the sea. So they will all, you, you would not get any of the gold scales unless you go deep into the sea. And that you have to go quite a depth before you can actually start, uh, they start clearing. So that's why- so, so in, your, in your analysis then, what do you think will be the most useful thing that will come out of you studying the snails? Will it be a new painkiller? new anesthetic or just understanding of how this works or what? Yeah, so um, um, so what I described with the snails is something that I used to do in PhD. Uh, now my research has progressed a bit. Uh, what happened when I started understanding how these snails work on membrane proteins, I eventually got interested in membrane proteins. So after I finished my PhD, um, when I moved to Oxford to do my postdoc, that's when I started getting fascinated by the membrane. So it's kind of two sides of the story. In my PhD, I was studying these molecules which perturbs the membrane protein. In my postdoc, I'm now, I was studying those membrane proteins which were the target of these molecules and how they assemble in the membrane. And now, over the last one and a half year, after we have set up our lab, we are very interested in now bringing them together. So one of the key aspects of studying membrane proteins now is to look at how, how these proteins are interacting with each other in the membrane, how these proteins are assembled in the membrane, what kind of other molecules they're interacting with, and how can we study them directly from the membrane environment. The cellular membrane environment is very, very challenging environment for any biophysicist, simply because there's a lot of lipid, it's not water-soluble, and traditionally it has been a major, major challenge to study anything that is embedded in the membrane. So what we are really interested in doing now is to develop approaches using mass spectrometry, which is in some way a glorified weighing meter, to study these macromolecular protein complexes sitting on the membrane. And then can we use the molecular resolution of mass spectrometers to understand what kind of other molecules binding to these proteins, what happens when these molecules bind, what associates with these proteins, and basically looking at the molecular orchestration of the signaling proteins, which are regulating large number of cellular responses directly from the membrane environment, and how external stimuli are manipulating this signaling cascade, which are taking place in our cell every moment of our life. And one of the key aspects that we are really interested in studying is to look at, can we, to ask the question that, can we take a set of membrane proteins, which are maybe responsible for pain perception, maybe responsible for cellular growth, maybe they're deformed in a particular disease condition, and can we now ask the question that in a particular disease condition, what are the molecules it's interacting with? What happens if I throw another set of possible molecules to that? And then what happens to their cellular, the, 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 the native cellular organization when I throw these external stimuli inside? And this is where kind of both worlds merges together because now we're really interested. We have these set of proteins which are really important for a large number of functional reasons in our physiology. What we're really keen on looking at is that how these molecules are assembled in the membrane. What happens if you throw these large number of toxins present there in biology, how they interact with each other, what happens to their native cellular organization in presence of these 
500 or 1,000 toxin present there. A simple challenge here is a, a snail would produce, let's say, 500 peptides or let's say a 500 toxin molecules. So to be general, so out of these 500, maybe only one or two are binding to your target protein of interest. How do you pinpoint that? How do you pick that one or two out of that 500? So there we are now using the power of molecular power of uh, mass spectrometers so that we can actually detect what kind of molecules are binding to the protein of interest. So that we can now do whatever I did, let's say 10 years back in a blind search manner, where I would start finding out the sequences and the structures of all the toxin molecule present there and kind of guesstimate based on their structure, which one might bind where. But now we are actually going a step ahead because now we can actually directly look at these proteins and the receptors where these bind. So now we can take these receptors from their cellular environment, throw in all these toxins and see which one binds, where do they bind, what happens when they bind. And these kind of questions would, they're very key for two reasons. One, it gives us unique molecular probes to understand cellular physiology. For many of these proteins, we don't really know how their downstream cellular cascades are regulated. That's what these, these natural toxins give us a fantastic molecular probe to target ex exactly one protein of interest, leaving everything aside. Second, we can actually now use this platform as a large-scale drug discovery platform, where we can actually take any natural toxin libraries and throwing these uh, into these membrane concoctions of hundreds and hundreds of proteins, and then specifically ask the question, which one binds to where? And this would give us a fantastic height of revenue to now dissect the natural libraries of toxin in a very meaningful manner within a very short period of time. And this is kind of our- well, why, That's a great idea. Why not get um, a couple of fish tanks and find out which fish that these snails prey on most often and have them do it in the tank and then take the fish before it dies, you know, at various stages and, and look at it and see where the toxins are going with tissues there preferentially attacking with cell types. And that would give you a good, um, you know, scorecard for your analysis and see if it's working. Yeah, so that's exactly what we're doing. But instead of doing it on a fish, you can do it in a much more targeted. One of the problems of doing it directly on the fish is that you have, on both ends, you're looking at a large number of possible hits. Um, just in human, we have almost 20% of our genome, almost 25% of our uh, express proteins are membrane proteins. So you're looking at 1,000 membrane proteins and the toxin would be 500. So it's a 1,000 cross 500 problem. Instead, you can say that, look, I know this particular membrane protein is really important for breast cancer. I want to see in this set of toxins, in the snail which produces 500 peptides, is there anything that binds to this protein? If it does, which one binds? What's its structure? Where does it bind? These information would now enable us to directly target your targeted molecular discovery against our protein of interest. And in, instead of, you know, in a true sense, fishing for your target. Okay. So, and then what is the end goal? Yes. You, want, you want to understand how they interface with the membranes? The two sections in the lab. It's a very new lab. We opened for the last one and a half year, within which the last three months we have been closed. So, uh, one of, so there are two interests in this. One is a fundamental interest in understanding membrane protein biology. 
uh, it is and the methods that we are developing and the platforms that we are developing are now enabling us to see things that we could not see before look at processes that we could not do before so that is a fundamental need in the field that can we now look at how these proteins are organized in the membrane what happens in the presence of different chemical probes what happens to their organizations and functions and structure function integrity so that's a fundamental problem which we are very interested in understanding and a key interest in the lab is to develop techniques and new experimental approaches using which we can address this in a in a in a, in a wide number of systems but then there's another part of the lab which is interested in studying in a much more focused manner where we have one or two key set of proteins where we are trying to understand that which kind of molecule would bind which are the critical drug targets there where they bind and there are a large number of proteins where uh, drug targets we don't even know what's a good topology of a protein to target or which is a good binding pocket to target when you're developing drugs so if we understand how nature does it we can probably then address the question in a completely different way in a way we would then mimic the nature instead of doing it from scratch so that's a i would not use the commercial interest uh, rather i would say uh, a practical interest which we think can lead to a deliverable molecule or at least a deliverable uh, idea which can lead to a molecule that can be used in the in a in a medical setup to now alleviate different physiological conditions do you have any insight yet on um, you know which of these hundreds of, of peptides seem to be predominantly active and which are just you know maybe they're uh, adjuvants to the main so, ones uh, that are functioning so the interesting thing here is everything has a function and that is the most enigmatic part of this question that there are 500 molecules you can think about it these organisms are under tremendous uh, evolutionary pressure they have no genomic space to waste if there is anything that is of no use they would have filtered it out from their genome by now the reason for which it's not filtered out is because it serves a purpose now what's really interesting is that we don't really know what are these purposes the purpose of many 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 of these uh, polypeptides or top peptide toxins and that's largely because we didn't have a high throughput way to do a molecular discovery of these toxins and where they bind and with the experimental methods that we are developing now we think we are going to be there very soon we can actually now ask these questions in a much more high throughput manner and that's what we are interested in understanding because i don't believe that they're producing something which is of no use to them so what are you looking to do high throughput you're looking at the structure of the proteins is that a technology that's yet available is to is to determine so, the structure yeah so uh, the structure determination technologies are now available and they have been available especially with cryoem it has become much easier but any structure determination process is very low throughput Uh, it also requires a large number of samples, large amount of samples. What we are developing in the lab is a novel mass spectrometry approach, uh, which which is basically now allowing us to look at a megadalton protein complex, but at the same point of time, we can look at a small drug molecule of few hundred daltons, a few atoms present. So that breadth of molecular resolution that we have. is now enabling us to look at these large assemblies of the proteins but at the same point of time 
see which molecules are binding to it. On top of that, we're now developing approaches where we can now take these drug-bound protein complexes and then break it down inside the mass spectrometers and then find out what exactly is the drug, what is exactly the polypeptide sequence of this drug, what exa where exactly it binds. And these information, once we find it out, that's exactly what is missing right now because you can take most of these proteins against which the drug binds and you would look at in PDB, their independent structures are available. But that doesn't really solve the question because we don't really know, which, we can't really predict by looking at that structure which of these 500 peptides will bind. And that's where we think the, the resolution of mass spectrometers are really, really critical because it gives you unambiguous identification of which are the molecules that are binding to your protein, where are they binding, how many are binding, in fact, if there are any special modifications upon binding. And you can look at all that now from a very, from a very physiological uh, environment of the cellular membrane itself. And that's what that's we are developing in the lab. But can mass spec, how do you volatilize a giant protein or can you selectively cut it and volatilize certain functional groups and then mass spec them? Like, how do you figure this out with a gigantic protein? Yes. So um, the kind of mass spectrometry we do, it's slightly different from typical mass spectrometry, which probably many of many of many people around the world uses, which is called proteomics, that many people are familiar with. And typically in a typical proteomics setup, you sacrifice the structure of the protein. So you either denature it by adding organic solvent, or you add a protease which chew up the protein, which chews up the protein into smaller bits. But what we are doing, we, it's called native mass spectrometry. So the mass spectrometers, both in the ion optics as well as the front, as well as some of the pressure regimes of the mass spectrometers, are fine-tuned so that we can look at the intact protein complexes going up to as big as the entire ribosome. That now enables us to look at large protein complexes, keeping their structure integrity. Now, while we are doing this, the mass resolution is also very high. So while we can detect a megadalton protein complex, we can also have a very high mass accuracy at the M over Z axis. So that gives us the confidence of what exactly is binding to that. On top of that, we have now developed approaches in the lab which is now enabling us to take these protein complexes directly from a cellular membrane-like environment. So you know that they're in their physiological condition. And this has been a major, major challenge in the membrane protein field, because the moment you take them out of the membrane, they're not water-soluble. So unlike most proteins, they're not stable. We have figured out a way that we can now detect these things directly from the cellular environment itself, or cellular membrane-like environment. On top of that, we have now developed a way where we can now fragment these molecules, these gigantic protein complexes, with the ligand bound, with the molecule bound, directly inside the mass spectrometer. And just like doing a lab sequencing, now we can say which are the molecules binding to it, what is their chemical structure. In fact, we are in the process of developing ways where we can even retain the structural information of which region of the protein where this particular molecular toxin binds. So in, in that way, you know the structure of the protein, you know the structure of the molecule drug that's binding through mass spec. You would know the number of molecules binding. 
you would do where they bind. So you really don't need to determine this drug-bound structure of the protein anymore because you have all the information that's needed to now visualize where exactly the drug binds and how does it bind. That's what we are really, really interested in doing. And this is high throughput because unlike CRI-EM or crystallographic approaches, the sample requirement is really low and we really don't need to uh, go through this elaborate preps of making proteins and putting on a grid and related to work procedures. Now that you can identify um, the various peptides and even ones that are binding, mm. what have you what have you discovered? Anything unusual or interesting yeah, about absolutely. particular peptides? Absolutely. One of the key things that that is remarkable is that for a very long period of time, we used to think that, so the membranes are all made of lipids, right? So for a very long period of time, we used to think the lipids are just like brick in the wall. They're just forming a hydrophobic layer which separates through aqueous pores. But what's really fascinating to see now is how not just which peptide binds to where, but how that binding is modulated by another layer of regulation uh, of the lipid molecules present. And that's really fascinating us. Uh, we have been working with a couple of transporters which are responsible for nociception. And we can actually now see that there are specific lipids binding to it. There are specific endogenous regulators binding to proteins. And it has been absolutely fascinating. It's early days. Uh, just when we were getting really, really exciting results, we had to shut down everything. We are really hoping to go back to the lab now very, very soon. And uh, it's a fascinating time. Um, most days, you know, things as it is in the lab, things don't work as we want it to be. But at the end of the day, through that process, we learn something. And we are at this stage now where we are now taking up some of these really challenging proteins to work with and we're trying to understand that what kind of peptides bind there, or what kind of molecules bind there, what's the role of lipid as a cofactor in modulating these uh, structural assemblies. What, what would make a protein hard to work with versus not? Uh, um, let me answer that from the perspective of a uh, membrane protein. What makes it harder for a membrane protein? Uh, and that's because membrane proteins are in a very unique environment. Uh, they are residing at a cellular membrane, which is completely devoid of water, or mostly devoid of water. So unlike most other proteins, so 75% of a proteome, you can purify them and put it in an aqua solvent and then do your work with them. For membrane proteins, you can't do that. The moment you strip them off that hydrophobic, greasy lipid and strip them off from that hydrophobic, greasy lipid environment, they would coagulate, they would lose their structure, and they're not functional at that point. So there's no meaningful functional study you can do with them at that point. So the challenge is, how do you keep them out of the So you, how do you keep them take them out of their native environment, but at the same point of time, keep them native. And people have been working with lots of membrane mimetics to, to basically mimic the cellular membrane conditions. What we figured out is a way we can now look at things directly from membrane-like environment. And that's where our MASPEC setup that we have in the lab is very, very unique because it now enables us to get rid of this idea of using membrane mimetic 
because at the best, even in the best days, a mimetic is a mimetic. And we don't really know when it's not doing a good job. Why can't uh, people do this analysis in an inert oil? You know, as the, uh, as, why can't you use like an inert oil or an oil that would solvate uh, you know, these proteins but not break them apart? Is there something like that that exists? Yeah. So uh, if you want to do it from an inert oil, so there are specific chemical properties of a lipid that makes it, makes, that solubilizes the protein. The lipid is both greasy as well as aqueous. So there's a head group of a gear. So the head of the lipid is polar. It's in contact with the water. Whereas the tail of the lipid is hydrophobic. And that's what is solvating the protein. So the challenge is that creating an environment which creates actually, which, which produces both kind of chemical characteristics which are required. And that has been really, really challenging. There has been a huge development in the field over the last five to 10 years, uh, where there are newer and smarter detergents that are being made to mimic uh, these uh, lipid environment. But at the end of the day, the moment you take them out of the membrane, they're not the same species, they're not the same chemical environment anymore. And that's the point we lose many of the critical functions that are available. So for example, one of the reasons why we're really interested in revisiting our original question, my first scientific question of studying toxic binding to the protein is because if we really want to see how these toxins are targeting a target membrane protein in the physiology, we really need to keep this protein in that context. Without that, we can't really have a meaningful information. And that, that precisely is the driving for us to study these things directly from the membrane. Now, the problem of studying directly the membrane is that it just doesn't have your protein of interest. It has, a uh, human cell has close to 1,000 different proteins present in the membrane. How do you now independently study them? And to study them, you need to now take it out of the membrane. Uh, so how do you then do that without sacrificing the structure or the function? What we have developed is a way to now gently take them out from the from their membrane environment inside the mass spectrometer itself so that it doesn't doesn't experience any other perturbing agent for any longer period of time than it must that's what is now enabling us to now look at these assemblies directly inside mass spectrometer so our our experimental pipeline is now to not just take a protein from the membrane, but throw the membrane itself inside the mass spectrometer and then break that membrane, use the power of a mass spectrometer as like a hammer and then hammer down that membrane so that it just disintegrates into pieces. And then we can selectively take a protein of interest based on its mass. And then we can do the downstream studies. That's where the power of the mass spectrometer is, has been really, really useful for us to develop the protocol that we are developing. Yeah, that's very cool. Very cool. Thank you. Well, Kalal, we're almost out of time. What's the best way for people to uh, to find out more about your lab's work? Yeah, just look at our website or just write to us uh, or write an email to me or look at our website. We put everything there. We put things in the bioarchive also before uh, publishing anywhere so that it's open to public. And everybody can read it because that's actually really, really important for propagation of scientific ideas. Um, it comes from the idea of 
free speech and free knowledge. So it must be available for people to read without the paywall of the scientific journal. So we make sure every yeah, work from good. the lab goes there. And that's the best way to figure it out and the lab tree to handle everything. Well, very good. Well, Kalal, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was very Thank cool very to talk much. to you. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.